Breathing in diesel exhaust fumes is like walking into a fire without a mask. Over time, those toxins lead to cancer. Protect yourself with MagnaGrip, the easiest, most reliable exhaust removal system that features a true 100% seal to eliminate diesel exhaust fumes. To get free grant assistance, visit MagnaGrip.com and find them at FDIC at booth 2540. This podcast is brought to you by Flex 7 from Tenkata Protective Fabrics. Like a trusted turnout jacket you've had for years, Flex 7 Outer Shell Fabric delivers a perfectly broken-in feel on the very first wear. Flexible, comfortable, and powered with the strength of enforced technology, Flex 7 Outer Shell Fabric is made to move. To learn more, visit tenkatafabrics.com slash Flex 7. Flex 7, powered by Enforced Technology, only from Tenkata Protective Fabrics. TheFireStore.com, equipping protectors with passion. That's how they operate, and it's how they live. They understand that having the right gear can mean the difference between life and death. Their goal is to get you the gear you need when you need it at prices you can afford. Visit them at FDIC at Boots 110 and 111. Well, welcome to another edition of Fire and Training. I'm your host, Douglas Klein, and we're excited about uh, the new formats, the, the new things that are going on with fire engineering, blog talk radio, and about the show tonight. We're going to continue talking to, through a series that we've started Picking back up again, talking about resort fires and resort emergencies tonight. We're specifically going to jump into a lot of things that are going to wrap around what could happen at a resort in the mountainous regions across the United States and across the world. So joining me tonight is my esteemed colleague and good friend, Christopher Nam. Welcome on the show, Chris. Hey, Doug. Nice to be here with you. It's uh, looking forward to... Um, getting together again, looking forward to FDIC next year. Very excited about what's coming and what's going to happen there. Um, I'm telling you, Chris, one of the things that I'm finding is that there's a lot of new things coming out. And we're going to talk about something new tonight that a lot of our, our listeners and our viewers probably don't know about that's just really beginning to populate out of North Carolina. So, Let's let's jump into the show tonight and let's talk a little bit about what we know on resort fires and what we know about them being in the mountainous regions. So when, when I kicked the, the show off, one of the things that in doing this at FDIC last year that was really unique is some of the feedback was, you know, this is great. We really enjoyed talking about the fire, but what about the other things that, that do occur and can occur at these types of resorts. So uh, that's where we're going to go tonight. So let's talk about resorts. Let's talk about the mountainous regions that they exist in and some of the secluded areas they get. But before I kick into that, Chris, I know that we talk a lot about building construction and that being a very, very significant component to most everything that we have that's relevant. Uh, I learned that there is a new facility that has just opened up in Oxford, North Carolina. And they're beginning to take grass 
mixing it with resin and they are making floor planking and siding and things like that. And they're actually experimenting with a two before. I don't know yeah. if you'd heard that before or not. A That's little bit. Yeah. There's, there's, there's quite a bit of uh, technology and advancements that uh, continue on a variety of different levels, both at the uh, state, regional, national levels, internationally. I think the, the biggest thing that all of us have recognized over the last certainly few years are the continuing trends relative to uh, green movement, uh, carbon footprinting, and so forth. So this is part of that current trend uh, regarding what used to be just uh, ecological-based issues, but it's all about reducing the carbon footprint and identifying alternate ways to not only manufacture components that become part of assemblies that have come, become part of systems for buildings, but different ways to take non-traditional based uh, materials that again are from resources and other avenues and venues and make them into things that our buildings are being built about. So I'm very excited to sort of see where this is all going to go. Uh, this continues some trends that started a number of years back regarding just uh, various types of concrete applications for reinforced concrete. We're seeing some of the trends that are continuing to move forward with mass timber, cross laminate timber and so forth, their introduction into the building sciences, which is changing the game. So it, it continues to challenge us when we talk about building construction, building sciences and, and how we are so moving so far away from center when we always just talked about the fundamentals of the five fundamental building types, certain types of materials that were consistent within that five categories and occupancies. It is going so far away from that. And that's something that we certainly on your show, my show, and a number of other shows amongst uh, our colleagues that we touch upon or focus upon. And it's, it's all about understanding those buildings and what's going up today. And I'll just add this is that it may not be an entirely new building. You may have individual components that are part of these systems that go into retrofits or adaptive reuses. So again, as we're talking about resorts, let's say they're going to add on an addition or an expansion or renovation. Guess what? You very well may find as a responding agency, some very unusual types of uh, materials and components and systems that are now part of that building that are going to react in a very different manner possibly than what we're used to doing. So a lot of unknowns that are coming up with some exciting stuff for us to learn much more about. Well, I, I was a little floored when I was doing some of the research on this, Chris, and uh, it's a North Carolina based company. They've already signed a deal with one of the builders, D.H. Horton, oh. who is very, very prevalent yeah. in North Carolina and South Carolina for 100,000 sheets of this immediately. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, primarily in the re residential uh, applications, then, right? I know that uh, that company oh. is very yep. specific to the residentials throughout the South Carolina area, North Carolina. But uh, interesting. Next next trip down your well, I'll have to sort of uh, pop around some of the construction sites and take a look at what might be uh, being applied. So more to well, come on that. Certainly, yeah, yeah. if not on your show, certainly on my show. But we'll uh, I'll make a quick note of that. So yeah, we'll talk more about that. Well, you know, if it's going into the residential side that it's going to trickle across in some way, oh, yeah. shape or fashion to a commercial side. And, you know, one of the things that I'm thinking about in these mountainous and secluded style resorts is that uh, you think about your ski resorts, you think about your places like uh, we know Pipestem, West Virginia, some of the things that they have there. Um, 
and everybody thinks about a resort as being a large commercial building that's not necessarily that and that's one of the things that i showed you know in the presentation and we talked about fairly significantly with with the students that were in the class and and the dynamic discussion that they were having about the types of buildings some of the challenges they had in, in the mountains and ski resorts and places that were very secluded was really unique chris and one of the biggest things that i found was these folks were spread out across the United States and Canada. I had several folks from Canada there and some of the pictures that I had pulled, you know, to show these are, they're like, oh yeah, this is so-and-so. And over here, it's, uh, you know, about a 150, 200 foot drop off behind there. So that's where I, I began thinking, you know, it's not just always about fires. It's, it's about everything else that can occur that we're gonna be responding to specifically as emergency response folks uh, that are going out, that we're going to be dealing with emergencies, as we're called, because uh, we are an all-hazards mitigation unit, as we, we know. So let, let's dive into this. When I think about resorts and I think about mountains, one of the first things that comes to me is the challenges of the roadways, the accesses, and, of course, the weather that's associated uh, in the wintertime you know, in the mountains. So when we think about that and there are challenges and especially getting access, especially with our size apparatus and, and being able to pre-plan or plan ahead for what type of vehicles we got to have, let's move not just into the fire side, but now let's look into one of the things that is a big conversation that's going on at the national and international level about wildland urban interface as it's you know, related to the wildfires that are occurring and, and what you have to do to set up for protection of that. So give me some of your thoughts as to what do we need to be thinking about? What do we need to be planning for when we begin doing operations that are affected by wildfire with these types of resorts and gaining access and, um, you know, being able to evacuate or be able to get people removed from those areas as well. Well, there's there's a lot of challenges. I mean, think really first and foremost the the siting and the footprint of that the resort, how it's located in that particular wildland setting is, is very critical. Um, when we talk about the the vertical rise relative to the mountains or the peaks um, or where that resort is located, first and foremost is going to influence everything that we start planning and looking at from a contingency standpoint. So that that vertical rise, both in terms of accessibility, the terrain, how many switchbacks you have, what's the direct or indirect access, what is the timeliness to get from some major or primary roadway area to the primary location of that resort uh, complex or the, the primary building. From there, if we start talking about the wildland interface issues, especially with wildfire situations, again, what is the predominant siting of that complex regarding the, both the primary building, secondary and ancillary structures? Is it on the windward, on the leeward side? What is the predominant uh, environmental impacts? Where is the direction of a predominant wind coming from? What are the historical context of previous events, both large and small? Uh, so there's a lot of moving parts to it, but typically, again, we need to know the siting, how it relates back to the environment, taking a look at historical climate conditions, historical incidences, 
and then putting them together regarding the risk matrix. And the risk matrix in terms of vulnerability, probability, and severity are going to provide both the emergency service agencies, emergency management, fire, EMS, uh, rescue services, the USAR, and so forth, all with some, some needed data to assess and evaluate and then make some determinations based upon the priorities and the severities. But it, it's pretty simple if you follow that, that path. But um, the other thing that I'll just add, too, is that what you may have looked at in the past uh, very well may change dramatically based upon some of the things that we are now seeing regarding climate change, uh, environmental impacts, and both the subtle and the dramatics. It's the acute and the chronic things that suddenly are coming about that we've seen constantly with the North American wildfires, wildfires in both the East Coast, West Coast, um, how some things that used to be pretty common, predictable, are suddenly changing dramatically due to the apparent changes in uh, global climate. So it's a lot of moving parts and it's a very fluid condition, but it's certainly something that can be achieved in terms of identifying priorities, risks, and taking appropriate actions. So, you know, one of the things that comes to my mind when I think about some of these resorts is, you know, you were talking about the roadways, the switchbacks, you know, how far of a distance, you know, are you away? Uh, EMS-wise, this is a conversation that I think that uh, we need to have. We probably have more EMS responses to these resorts than probably what we would fire responses. Uh, especially, you know, depending on the time of year and the types of activities that are going on there. But, but again, where is this resort located versus where is the closest appropriate medical facility? How fast can we get an EMS response unit there for transport versus getting a first response agency to them to begin primary care of a patient and then transporting back to the most definitive care. How do we do that? So some of the conversations that we had, and I'll give you a chance to jump in on this, was that depending on the rurality of the area, now you get into some of the mountainous regions and some of the resorts in those areas like in and around Boulder and Denver and, you know, a lot of the ski resorts, you have, you know, infrastructure that's very, very close. And, you know, your response times based upon, you know, their capabilities and, and how they set up as an organization uh, are pretty well set. I think about Gatlinburg, specifically in Ober-Gatlinburg, the resort that's there, all the, the cabins and, and the lodging that's, you know, located, you know, up on Ober-Gatlinburg. And there's a fire station right below the ski resort itself. Well, that's a quick response in their position there specifically to be able to provide responses to every type of incident they had. And of course, they've had wildland fires there. They've had uh, flooding that's occurred, snowstorms, you know, medical calls, you name it. They pretty much run it. But again, in other areas, a good example is I'll go back to Pipestem, West Virginia. You know, the fire station is located probably you know, 10, 15, about 10 minutes outside of the, the park entrance. And then it's another five to seven minutes or better up into the park entrance. And then for, for the secluded part, the only way to get down into the gorge is either to walk or transverse some type of, of you know, pathways by ATVs, or you have to ride that tram. Yeah. And that tram is limited 
a lot of times because of the wind conditions that exist in the gorge that you're going down in. So thoughts when it, when it comes to that, I know that, uh, in a lot of your travels, you've had the opportunity to be in, in a multitude of different places. What are you seeing departments do that they are working to mitigate these types of responses and, you know, the hazards that go along with that, the time deficits, you know, because time is, is of the essence, whether it's fire, whether it's medical, whether it's trauma, uh, whether it's some other type of disaster that's going on. I think the emergency services, again, fire, EMS, rescue, law enforcement, any any of the primary response services that need to provide a service to a particular property or resort, as we're talking about, especially in a, in a remote setting, may or may not have the timeliness of response. So in some instances, the proximity of where that resort may be very well may fall into a reasonable response time from a village, town, crossroads of wherever that agency or agencies may be present. But it does take time and those times may change dramatically based upon both uh, forecast or unforecasted and unpredictable weather situations. I think what I've seen personally, and I think what the profession has seen over the last 20 years in particular, maybe, actually it is over the last 20 years, especially with some of the significant changes in looking at vulnerabilities of sites, either accessible and or remote, is based upon other related threats. And those other threats are unfortunately becoming far too common in a variety of different ways. So it may not very well be, as we've talked about, right? It may not be fire, it may not be EMS, it may not be technical rescue, but may very well be some other type of threat associated with that uh, particular entity, which primarily leads us to this concept of having self-sufficiency or, or self-sufficiency. Um, what I think we're seeing is that regardless of how large or small, there is some level of self-supporting capabilities at the site level that supplements and enhances the potential delayed response of those that are coming off-site to get to site. So primarily what we're saying is the site needs to have some type of incipient response capabilities, some basic level of, uh, of tech rescue response capabilities, EMS, medical, and so forth. So what we commonly see is some type of staffing, whether it be <clears throat> some individuals that are part of the staff that have some level of medical EMS response, typically basically at the EMT level, at least one or some, some type of facility to provide additional treatment uh, or triage while we are awaiting those services or more expansive interrelated uh, services, whether it be, again, incipient fire, some basic tech rescue, EMS, and even to the point of having some degree of, um, for better words, law enforcement capabilities. Again, going back to some of these threats, it depends on the size, depends on vulnerabilities, depends on the, the number of, uh, of uh, individuals coming to the site and what that frequency may be, the composition. Do we have a certain type of demographics of age groups, certain types of activities? So all of these things are, are part of it. But I think going back directly, Doug, it's you know having self-sufficiency, having that capability at the, at that resort level to help support the uh, more robust and um, more competently and skilled and the availability of resources by the rest of the 
emergency responders. So, uh, and I've seen that even in, even in some of the smallest facilities, and it goes back to some of the vulnerabilities and goes back to legal issues that are just changing the landscape actually for the betterment. Because if, if, if we went to some of these facilities, whether it be on the East Coast, and I've gone to, again, East Coast, West Coast, uh, Western parts, uh, the upper uh, Northwest, and, and some of the uh, types of things that are common to the Southeast. And years ago, there was, uh, aside from going to a very large resort or a ski resort, there was very little in the way of that supplemental uh, uh, support mechanisms and the availability. And I think the world has changed and we're seeing that the vulnerability, especially from a legal standpoint, where incidences have occurred in the past and in the absence of having services, guess what? It triggers a more robust response to identify, look at the risk, and then plan accordingly. And it, and it does take money, does take time and competencies and so forth. So that's really where we're going. And, I, and you've seen it too, right? You know, it's, it's just a common thread that's out there, uh, large or small. But the more remote it is, the more likely you're going to, hopefully, if it's a legitimate, whether it be family run or a corporate run or internationally run organization or entity, there, there's going to be something there that's uh, uh, going to be expected. You, you know, we talk about all this stuff, and, and one of the things that comes back to my mind is in September of 1989, in the spring of that year in West Virginia, in, in Mercer County, which is around Princeton and Bluefield, uh, we ran a disaster drill, and it was a hurricane drill. And I'm thinking, what in the world are we doing running a hurricane drill in West Virginia? I said, we're not going to get a hurricane. You know, we, we don't experience that type of stuff. I said, I've, I've never experienced a hurricane in my lifetime here. Well, lo and behold, September rolls around in 1989, in this hurricane called Hugo it shows up and slams into the South Carolina coast. Very, very high category storm. I think about 160, 165 mile an hour winds. And the track tracks right over Mercer County in West Virginia as a low category one hurricane. And for the lack of you know, luck that I have, uh, I had to be on shift that day. I had a cardiac patient having a, uh, a STEMI MI and we were blocked from the hospital. I spent basically about 12 and a half hours in a fire station doing major cardiac care for a patient because we just couldn't get to the hospital from there. I mean, we were blocked in by trees, roadways were completely, you know, uh, covered and, and trees were down. You, you couldn't do any type of movement one way or the other. We were just kind of stuck there. <clears throat> so I think one of the things I want our listeners to be thinking about when we talk about resort operations and, and those type of things, I mean, we, we get caught up in those areas. And of course, around, you know, Concord University in Athens and the Princeton area. And of course, going down towards pipe stem, there are several resorts that exist. And th this individual we picked up from down around uh, pipe stem at one of those cabin resorts. And we're trying to get back to Princeton in the middle of this storm. And of course we got to a point that we just couldn't go. Uh, the roadways were blocked. We were told it would be a 
you know, considerable amount of time. So we held up in the fire station there and, and, you know, provided care, but most people don't think that way. And I think that's one of the things I want our listeners to be able to do is when we talk about the populations that go to resorts and the time periods that they could be at the resort, some of the seclusion, some of the access points is an all hazards thought process of what are we going to do from an emergency services side? What, what if the ambulance could not get to you and you're the fire department having to provide that care for a long period of time, whether it's BLS, whether it's ALS, you know, we, we have to be thinking about these things. And, and some of the conversations that were going on in the classroom and in, in that pre-conference that I had, Chris, was just phenomenal about thought process, you know, which, you know, Bobby had, had talked about doing things on, on tactics and resort fires that this has now evolved into a completely much broader perspective thought process and programming, you know, that uh, we'll continue to share on fire and training and other shows uh, with our colleagues. And, and then hopefully again, back at FDIC to talk more in depth about this. So what do you think about being stuck in West Virginia in a hurricane? I mean, well, it's just unheard of. I think that, and that goes back to this whole issue of looking at what, historical data is available of what is consistent in the past and also looking at what is occurring in the current and being able to forecast that going forward. You certainly can't predict everything and anything, but it goes back to potential probability and also the preparation for that probability. So whether it be an adverse weather once in a hundred years or once in a thousand years, we are just seeing the frequency of these once in what used to be termed once in a hundred year type of cycle being compressed much more to once every so many decades or once every so many years. So we don't, I don't think that we understand all of those aspects of what and why they're occurring, but nonetheless, we have to take a look at preparation for them, especially when they are occurring in other similar areas, primarily in a geographical or regional area. So Take a look at what's occurring in the Northeast, what's occurring in the Southeast, you know, some of the things that are unique to the Western states and so forth, uh, or whether we even talk about the Canadian provinces. It's, it's much, much more related to weather uh, patterns that are common and also the sighting, whether we are in a very high peak, low peak, if we're in some type of a canyon valley. I mean, the proximity, the location have a lot to be said about that. The one thing that you made mention about, too, is the contingencies dealing with choke points. You know, we talk about this remoteness, and again, the whole aspect, just the term remote and resort are conflicting, but yet so synonymous with looking at the frequency and the potential for what can occur. So remote is indicating that there is not a lot around. And again, when we talk about the resort there, we're also indicating that there are some type of population that are going to be present. So with that being said, just something as simple as having a choke point in a primary access road of which there's typically only one way in and one way out may create a series of cascading challenges. So now do we have the contingencies for alternate uh, land travel to go up the slope? Uh, do we have alternate means of, of air transportation and the availability and the accessibility of single or multiple helicopters, both from private and the public sector? I mean, there's just a lot of different pieces here that uh, create a lot of questions that have to be uh, identified 
And then certainly today in this world, uh, emergency services have to identify what the means are to, to overcome them. And that comes through good, effective uh, planning and projection and so forth. But far, far too many what ifs. And uh, um, again, everybody doesn't expect something to occur. Oh, yeah, it only happens up in the Canadian provinces on some high peak. It happens uh, only in the uh, in the western states, depending upon where a ski resort may be. But we constantly see a lot of things that uh, have occurred. Small fires that quickly escalate into very large scale series of devastating events that cannot be controlled. But again, the one signal, single aspect there is the life safety of the civilians, as well as the employees of that resort, as well as the wild wildland. I mean, we talk about wildlife, we talk about pets and animals. I mean, there's just a lot of uh, significant issues here that one has to look at that may not have, have, have addressed. And I think, again, Doug, I think that, that the opportunity here with this type of focus area, I certainly, until you talked about uh, doing this program for FDIC and, and having the opportunity to sit in on your class there on the workshop uh, this past year and listen in to the conversation and see the presentations, as well as what we did on our, on our previous uh, podcast, this is an extraordinary opportunity that no one has touched upon, and, and certainly you are the guy that has the insights and the experiences based upon working in the mountains, working at the beach, and, and, and in such a dynamic uh, setting, actually all the way from Florida to the, to the mountains and from uh, the uh, seasides of uh, South Carolina, North Carolina, and so forth. It's just a lot of things that can, I think, very well fit into a, uh, an extraordinary series and a topical area and information. I really do believe, too, that as you get more input from those that are out there, that there's, there's such a vacuum. And again, I've done a little research. You know, we were talking about the preparation for the other show and some of the things that we pulled together. And, you know, I was doing some research to see what was online a couple of months back when we were talking about this for the for that production of the podcast. And there's very limited information. I mean, there's some stuff on the Internet, but there are no distinctive uh textbooks that really get into the level of detail that covers everything from seaside to mountainside to the middle of nowhere. And when we talk about resorts, as we talk about for mega mansions, as I've talked about, you know, it's everything from, you know, the coastal to the middle of nowhere. And for the resort areas, sometimes they very well are because of that, that uh, desire for individuals to go skiing or hiking or, or any of the other types of natural based uh, activities. They are truly in the middle of nowhere that requires and demands a, a different perspective or emergency response. Well, I, I want to switch gears just just a hair and actually get into a little bit of the fire operations. And and, you know, we, we talk a lot about five star command and, and the components that go with that. So if you listen to our shows, you, you've, you've heard this concept of five star command. Um, I want to put a five-star thought process together about what goes on at operations at resorts. Well, one of the first ones of, of the stars would be the hose stretches. You know, how are you going to manipulate or deploy hose lines to be able to do fire suppression, either getting into the building, getting access to the building, operating on the inside of the building. You know, that's, that's one of the stars that we need to be looking at. The next one is water supply. Uh, in, in developing a, a substantial water supply that you can sustain the fire ground operations that you need could be challenging 
from having to draft from lakes or ponds or dry hydrants to do you have a municipal water system that will supply you the amount of water that you need? Uh, the next one would be the search and rescue components that go into that. Some of these buildings are very, very difficult to access. Some of them are very large and very complex in their designs and in the interior designs of these buildings, whether large, small, whatever they may be, they're challenging. So when you start doing search and rescue in these buildings, you know, that's, that's another operation that you have to take into consideration. So now we take a look at how do we uh, look at the ventilation of these type of buildings to be able to perform operations. And of course, anytime you have multiple floors, the fifth one will be, you know, getting ladders up for life. So you take those five components and you can apply those to any fire you really go to, but specifically on these resort fires. And I call that the, the five stars of consideration that you need to have when attacking these resort fires and when you're pulling up on them. And one of the biggest challenges, as we've discussed before, is water supply. Many of these resort locations do not have easy access uh, for fire apparatus to secure a good water supply. Even if there is a natural body of water that exists, it's just not accessible. And that takes you into alternative methods. And, you know, as, as I was preparing for us to discuss tonight, I, I went back to just just a routine fire that I had in West Virginia. And I remember carrying a 250 gallon per minute portable pump down over a large embankment. And I mean, when I say large embankment, I'm talking a couple of hundred feet uh, across a, what would be like a floodplain area to the creek side and, and start pumping water. Well, once you start stretching lines that far, and you got to go back up a, a distance, you know, automatically you got to put another pump in line to be able to just get any pressure. And then once you get to the top of the hill, however far you are away from the fire, you've, you know, got to use a, a relay pumping component. Now here's the, the piece. There's no way you could get a fire apparatus to that water supply. It was a ham, you know, carried portable gasoline pump that pumped 250 gallons of a minute. Now they have them up to 500 GPMs now a minute, but you know, you have to make sure that your water source, especially some creeks or streams, you know, do you have the capability of pulling that, you know, with the depth? Uh, I can remember that night. It was just like I was a kid. I was, I was building a dam in, in the stream to be able to get enough water backed up to, to get the depth of the hard suction and the strainer underneath that. So those are some of the challenges I think of, of water supply. So, Chris, I know you've traveled quite a bit around here recently. You've been, you know, out in Nebraska and you've, you've been other places. But let's just stop and think about this, this five-star concept that uh, you've put into place, especially when we talk, talk about five-star command, but now beginning to take that concept and expand it out in, into these five pieces that go with every fire, specifically resort fires, which are very challenging. Water supply, what have you seen as you've traveled? Well, and again, I think that we're seeing the challenges affecting the what used to be contingency planning and having some type of static water source available on site. Uh, the unexpected droughts that uh, have been experienced in a variety of different resort areas, again, across the United States, have resulted in the uh, depletion of those water sources, whether they be 
natural natural ponding streams, lakes, waterbeds, uh, and so forth, or the types of of uh, availability of water on site that normally was supplemented through natural resources and runoff, that the unexpectedness of having that water depleted to the point where it's no longer available, and especially having it available for gallon, sustainable gallon per minute flow rates is a, is a major problem. So there are efforts with the more larger resorts to uh, identify and uh, develop on-site capabilities. And that primary, primarily is through various types of, of uh, supply and tanking and, and uh, cisterns and, and other methods to have on-site availability as a stored resource. But it takes money. It takes uh, quite a bit of effort. And again, we still have uh, economic stressors that are occurring. So there are planning to look at those contingencies, but I, I think we're still a ways away from seeing them implemented on a consistent basis. So we're recognizing that there is a problem, meaning the industry, the resort industry is recognizing these problems with contingency planning and uh, trying to figure out how to fix it. So that being said is that we're going to continue to see gaps. So in other words, you very well may through some type of pre-planning efforts. So let's say you know, you've got a resort and uh, the peak seasons are coming up here as we get into the summer months. Or again, this is a slow time based upon the peak seasons being during the winter months. So there are opportunities to pre-fire plan or pre-emergency plan, look at contingency planning and look at those particular aspects. I will say this is that if you think you're going to have the availability of sustainable water to uh, suppress a increasingly demanding fire situation that is going from room and contents to structure fire, you very well may find yourself behind the eight ball, not only rapidly, but in an escalating fashion that is going to catch you by surprise. You need to anticipate that. We see, I've seen various incidences time and time again, whether we talk about the mountains of Tennessee or the areas of, of East Coast to West Coast, these are not uncommon. There are plenty of after action reports and events that have resulted in significant property losses based upon fire conditions in which the supporting agencies, although they may have been relatively proximal, meaning they had a, you know, a, a reasonable response time, they arrived on scene, the, the rapidness and the development of what we are seeing regarding the fire loads, the building loads, the remoteness, um, other related weather-induced factors that continue to dry out the buildings, create uh, wildland interface conditions. I mean, you, you've got to anticipate this. And again, Doug, you're, you know, you're creating this shopping list of aspects. And when we look at those components, I would say probably the, the, the five components that we typically have talked about under the five-star command model deals with, again, buildings, construction, command, human uh, resource, safety, and then the risk element. Those three pieces primarily dealing with the risk looking at buildings and looking at the command, those three in particular are so integrated that, again, when you start connecting some dots, taking a look at footprint, proximity, location, vulnerabilities, um, and then all, again, population risks, service demands, and so forth, you start identifying and painting the picture and developing your matrix for risk. So um, it, it's, it's a hard point, and I think that for our listeners that have either singular or multiple types of remote resorts, 
Sometimes, uh, again, there there is a singular resort. If I'm if we're going up to our good friends up in uh, Burlington, Vermont, right? Um, we have a considerable amount of ski resorts that typically have uh, 365 days worth of activities during the summer months. We have a lot of hiking and trail activities, and during the winter months, we've got you know, winter wonderland that creates an entirely different set of parameters for snowmobilers and snowshoers and uh, trailblazers and the skiers and, and so forth. So different weather conditions, different challenges, different time in a whole cascading series of, of potential events that have to be identified and planned for and have at least three tiered levels of contingencies. And that is just the basic. In other words, if I have a failure point or I have some significant issue with the first condition, what's my backup? What's my backup to the backup? So going at least three deep, three tiers deep in some de uh, degree of defense is going to be very, very imperative. I think that's really my biggest takeaway saying that for everything that you do on the fire, have three levels deep of contingencies of what if, what if, what if, and then plan for that and hopefully have everything in place. You, can't, you can keep taking it to as far as you can go, but I think legitimately um, we've always had and we've always talked about within fire emergency services having a singular backup plan. That goes to that second tier. Um, I think it's prudent in today's world of emergency management uh, and preparation to have that at least that third tier because if there is going to be a potential failure point, it's going to happen very rapidly at that second tier you better have something in place to help uh, facilitate, mitigate, and control it at that third tier, if not further, if you have the availability. And again, depending upon the size of that resort, the larger the resort, the uh, potential layers of uh, additional contingencies that one has to consider. So, You, you know, you threw out uh, uh, the Vermont area, and, and I think about exactly what is there and just how diverse those type of resorts oh, yeah. are. One of the big ones that I think about are the bed and breakfast. Uh, one particularly is the Strong House in uh, Virginia's. Uh, beautiful facility, just old Victorian style facility. And, and the complexities, like one of the stairwells is like almost straight up and down. Um, you know, the access as you go through various rooms to get from point A to point B, um, how the rooms are designed upstairs, some of the you know, just uniquenesses of, of what would occur if, if there was some sort of an event, fire, you know, weather related that would occur, you know, how, how would you handle that? What would you do? Just to, as you said, the contingency plans that go to that are just so significant. Yeah. And again, we're, we're back to the same concepts that we talk about in Five Star Command and, you know, building construction being one of them. And, Again, one of the, the pieces that I will throw out here and, and offer up is that the human element that goes into that, part of that human element is what are your responders capable of doing? What have they been trained to do? What is their intelligence level and skill level when it comes to dealing with things they don't deal with on a daily basis? And, you know, we're we're seeing some challenging events come about that, you know, honestly, most departments don't prepare for. No, you know, they they don't think about because it's never occurred in their their history. But as you and I both talk, we need to be learning vicariously from what's happened in other locations, and you know, through NIOSH reports, through other reports, through 
what you know people are giving us for information that's coming out of those events. Um, just tremendous amounts of learning and, and thought process that we need to be exploring. And now's not the time to be complacent because you know our environments are ever evolving, they're ever changing. Uh, the amount of population is, is growing. Uh, some of these areas are are really really taking off. Uh, they're they're just a good example is in in the Grand Strand here. You know they put together a report called T Vision 2040. They said there would be you know 400,000 people here in 2040. Well, we're scaring, you know, 340,000 people, you know, now. I mean, you know, 400,000 people, we're up around 378, 380,000 as regular population, not to mention somewhere around 21 million people that rotate through here uh, annually as, as visitors and guests. And then our, our transient population that comes back and forth that have places uh, in the area and come down and spend a weekend or a week and, and it's back and forth. So it, it's a lot of challenges to go into that and making sure, and this is where, where I go back to, this is the training side of me coming out and the professional development side is developing your people to be able to handle the situations that they're faced with. They may have never done this before and it may be hard to train for, but we have to learn through others' experiences and that's that vicarious learning. You know, one of the challenges you just made mention of, Doug, and, and again, when we take a look at the availability of information, many of these resorts are privately owned and even corporate owned, and, and there's very little that may come out from an incident unless there is a significant loss of life or even a, a degree of uh, significant property loss. So with that being said, there, there may be accessibility to some of those reports. More often than not, the closest you're going to get to some type of substantial info and data is going to be from news clippings and online reports and the accessibility to, to media. Um, there are no specific, unless, again, there are other related either state or federal agencies that have oversight due to the severity of that incident that might create an after action report or a review of that incident. So it's very incumbent upon our, our listeners to start creating their own database. And actually, I, I know that you've talked about the potential of doing independent research as part of this whole series and efforts and starting to create a database that might be accessible online to help support the efforts of the audience, certainly throughout North America. And then, you know, there's the other international component, but certainly talking about our, our Canadian provinces and our states here, there's a lot of bits of information that is accessible, but there is no singular portal that one can access it. So everyone that's out there is trying to, you know, identify the breadcrumbs and trying to do their own research, which continues to be elaborate, uh, uh, laborious in terms of the effort that's required. And, and we're covering ground over and over again. So, you know, there may be a dozen or more listeners that have done some research, may have access to it. So there's some things here that I think that you can take a look at regarding the sharing, the, the, the repository of the information, and then the sharing of that information also. But uh, it's a struggle. I mean, we, we've seen it from both of our sides of trying to access it. And unless it's something significant that made a national uh, news level with, a, a, I know, a 60-second soundbite on, on one of the main channels, 
there's going to be very little that one may see. It's just a very blip on the screen that we see on some of the news feeds on our fire and emergency service sides, and off it goes. And then you suddenly recognize that there's this more information on what went on, and then you know maybe contacting the fire department, the agencies. That there's just a lot of effort. So you know I don't want our listeners to think that there's some place that they can suddenly do this quick little Google search, which I'm hoping they've already recognized, and that's why this whole series and, and conversation is so unique and, and, and it really starts filling this major void is that no one is talking about it. No one is, is connecting the dots. And again, there's some, some fertile ground here for a lot of cool things to happen that, uh, that you're certainly on the, on the front, front edge for. So uh, I'll add this one more comment here. You know, we talk about this aspect of uh, preparation, you know, don't feel that as an agency, most of our responders may be coming from rural settings with with less than uh, available both resources of personnel and equipment. But nonetheless, if, if that particular property exists in your response area, it is incumbent upon you to establish and identify what the basic level of response will be train accordingly and maintain that skill set and proficiency. That is what your responsibility uh, truly is. And then secondly, uh, don't be afraid to really step up with the property owners, not only the managers, but we're talking about the owners, going to the owners that may be very remote from that facility. There are those that run the facility. There's also the owners that may be somewhere else in the, in the world or the United States that are actually the ownerships of it. You know, seek them out, identify, establish some communications, and uh, ask for what you feel is needed, but have the supporting data to uh, uh, be able to reinforce and establish why. You know, don't just say, well, because, because, we can't do this, we can't do that, but have legitimacy regarding the pre-fire planning, the risk assessments, have the reports available, and be able to share with them. Chances are you, hopefully, again, positively speaking, that there's going to be receptiveness to do the right thing for the people that are coming to that resort. I think the last thing anybody wants to see, especially with the resort owners, is some type of an adverse event, whether it be large or small, but the more significant, the greater degree of adverse publicity and how quickly uh, things can go south on that uh, facility economically uh, and so forth. Well, you know, we've been talking about mountain resorts and some of the secluded resorts, but I want our listeners to know that um, a lot of times I get, uh, well, we don't have a resort in our location. Well, let me break it down for you. You probably do. You, you probably just aren't aware of what a resort really consists of. So just to kind of run the list, I've, I've done this on each one of the shows uh, community and golf style resorts, you know, where people go for golf outings and, and, you know, our own golf courses and the communities that exist there and the types of, you know, resorts that, that pop up. I know there's several of those across the United States. We have the resorts that are in the mountains, the resorts that are along the coast, and that's what a lot of people think of. However, we need to really recognize that it's, it's more than that. Um, coastline and mountains take up a big portion of it. But I also want folks to really begin thinking about a resorts that sit on lakes, a resorts that sit on the rivers, uh, a resorts that are not your typical resorts that we think about, like 
camping resorts, you know, large areas that have, you know, the, the smaller cabins in, in these resort areas, even resorts that are, are located along uh, waterways or areas. Uh, and I consider some of these resorts are like cruise ships. Uh, we have river cruises that are actually in a sense, a resort, you know, on the water. Um, again, the secluded or rural resorts that we talked about, and then we can even, you know, break these into the smaller uh, size buildings to multi-story buildings to large, large complexes of multi-story buildings or high-rise buildings, you know, all the way down to just a, a regular camper. So, I want to break it out that most likely you do have some sort of a resort somewhere within your jurisdiction. You just probably never really thought that much about it. Uh, so our listeners need to keep that in mind. So we're coming up on uh, time to close out the show, Chris. Any parting thoughts that you want to share? No, with uh, Chris? <laughs> Again, Doug, you know, we just have hit some fertile uh, conversations here. And we continue to just scratch the surface. I think that uh, as we've talked about and, and, and has, as you are envisioning, there are some very, very unique multifaceted uh, considerations, whether we are caught talking about from seaside to mountainside. You, you made some great examples about the river cruises. You know, just the other day, I'm, I'm listening to uh, some commercials talking about going up the Mississippi and all these different uh, various types of, of entities, whether it be on a riverboat or other type of, of mini cruises, cruise boats that, again, can accommodate upwards of 50 to 100 individuals that are going down the, the waterways. They are remote from direct accessibility, depending upon where they uh, port and uh, their locations. But there's just a variety of things that I think our listeners may not have a degree of an appreciation of. And I think you are certainly connecting some dots here to create some exceptional insights and opportunities to really help the emergency services, whether it be fire, EMS, law enforcement, all of the primary, the ancillary groups, because each one is such an integral, all hazard response. Uh, whether we talk about aviation, whether we talk about the forestry divisions, again, there are certain, there are such, such a vast degree of, 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 uh, interagency response requirements and cooperations and so forth, along with the risks and the vulnerabilities. So I'm really looking forward to helping uh, continue your conversation, talking about these categories. And uh, again, for our listeners, just uh, soak it all in, start figuring out what needs to be done, but just start somewhere. If you have something that you've identified through these conversations and so forth, start somewhere and uh, move that ball forward. The longer you wait, the, the greater degree of risk and vulnerability you may have. So, uh, again, some really good uh, good insights, Doug. Great, great job. Well, thank you, Chris. Uh, to our listeners, uh, we certainly appreciate you joining in another edition of Fire and Training. I'd be remiss if I did not tell you that we dedicate this show to the men and women who are out in the streets responding 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year except every fourth year, it's 366 in the leap year components. But uh, our, our goal is to provide you with the best information, the best knowledge, and the best training that we possibly can. And our focus is that you're safe and 
profoundly that everyone goes home and that's uh, supporting the National Fallen Firefighters Foundation and the Everyone Goes Home programs that uh, you and I, Chris, both have been involved with yeah, very much uh, so. since the inception. So uh, just very, very happy about uh, uh, the fact that we're able to share something with our listeners that's different and unique. And we look forward to having them join us back for another edition of Fire and Training. Again, I'm your host, Douglas Klein. Joining me tonight is my esteemed colleague, Christopher Nam. We look forward to seeing you on either Taking It to the Streets or another edition of Fire and Training. Take care, stay safe, and train hard. Take care, everyone. <laughs>